Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. It's great to be with you. It's great to uh, just be able to engage and worship with you today. My name's Corey, if we've never met, and I am the lead pastor here at GFC, and it's my honor to be able to bring God's word to you today. Thanks for joining us, whether you're sitting in the room or you're watching online. I apologize. We had some audio problems earlier, but hopefully you're back with us. Or if you're listening later on the podcast, it's great to hang out with you too. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some time on your Sunday, on your weekend, whenever this is, to engage with us, to sing with us, and to learn with us as well. And we are starting a, well, we're not starting, we're in the middle of a series that we've been tracking with for the, from kind of a couple months ago. So I've seen some new faces uh, this morning, so let me catch you up a little bit. We have been focusing this year on Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And so we're in the early stages of that. And so if you've been in church or you've been around church culture, you know that as the Sermon on the Mount. And that's simply stated because Jesus, while he's teaching this, is kind of on the side of a mountain, on the side of a hill, preaching to as many people as he could have hear him. And there's an interesting mix of people around as he's preaching. There's people that have decided to be followers of Jesus already. And so they're engaged and connecting with him and wanting to hear everything he has to say. There are also people listening who are skeptical. And so they're trying to figure out who this Jesus is, why he's around, what is he teaching, is it profitable, should I listen to him, and to see whether they want to engage or not. And then there's other people that are listening only to trip him up, only to find things that they actually want to hold against Jesus. And so maybe you're here and listening, or you're listening online, or you found us on YouTube somewhere, and you're in one of those three camps. Maybe you would be a follower of Jesus, and so you're engaged, and so if you're, if you're that person, when we read these verses, we have to lean in and say, what is Jesus teaching us and, and how do I apply it to my life today? If you're skeptical, you get the opportunity to kind of engage and just go, let's see what Jesus has to say. Let me see if it's worth it. Is it worth it for me to follow what he says? Is it worth it for me to engage with it? Is it profitable for my life to put what Jesus is saying to the test? And if you're here and you, you had a checkered past with the church, it's not good. I, I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're here. I would invite you just to kind of lean in and see what Jesus is like and see what he has to say today. And one of the things that Jesus has been teaching us over the course of time that we've been in this uh, passage is that there are new kingdom norms. And so what we mean by that is when you decide to follow Jesus, we also then are a part of God's kingdom. So what does that mean? Well, it means that life is going to maybe look a little bit different. We're going to have different things. We know what it's like to dress appropriately in our culture, what are normal foods in our culture, what are normal ways to interact with people in our culture. It doesn't mean when you become part of the kingdom of God, all of a sudden you just have to wear Jesus-only t-shirts and change everything you eat, right? But at the same time, the choices and decisions we make, the way that we interact with other people might change, and the way we react to situations might change because we're thinking as a person that's part of God's kingdom and not simply as somebody who's just part of this world. And so as we go through these topics, these passages, some of them are not easy. And I'm going to warn you today that there's, there's part of this topic that's not going to be easy. But we have to look at what is Jesus saying? Why would he say this? Is it, a po- is it a positive thing for us to follow what he's saying? And then how do we apply it to our circumstances? So we're going to pick up our, our story today in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31, and you can open up your physical Bible if you have it. You can go on your phone. If you go to our website, you'll find the follow-along tab, and you can find all the verses and all the notes there. You can even ask a question if you would like, and we'll get back to you later in the week. 
And we'll have the verses here on the screen for you. So in Matthew 5, verse 31, it says this. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. Okay, let me pause and just kind of recap. And if you weren't here last week or you missed last week, let me just help us understand what's happening. Jesus is in a certain cadence in his conversation at this point where he brings up a topic that's an old law, one of the laws that they would have gotten, the Jews would have gotten previously in what we would know as the Old Testament. So if we look at our Old Testament, the first five books are known as the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those books, there are laws that they were given and they were continuing to follow to this day. And so what Jesus is doing, he did it last, last time we talked, we talked about a couple, we're going to do two more today. He says, you've heard it said, or he's saying, remember the law that was taught to our ancestors. You've heard this law. And then what he's going to say is, you know it this way. Let me teach it to you a different way. And so let me read that verse just one more time. Verse 31, you have heard the law, the one that was given previously. A man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But then verse 32, he says, but I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. So what verse is he talking about? What law is he talking about previously that they would have known? And this law came from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It says this, Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. And so this is the law that Jesus was referencing. Now a little bit of background as to what the people would have been thinking when he brought up that law is that there were kind of two different ways of thoughts on this law that had come about a little bit before Jesus got to be around. And so some people would have followed one rabbi who would have said, there's only one reason to get divorced, and it's the reason that Jesus gives. He says there's been unfaithfulness. And so that rabbi leaned into that that way of thinking, and some people followed him, but the majority of people followed a different version of that. And the different version was simply that a man could divorce his wife for basically displeasing him. And so in this culture that they would have known at this time when Jesus is teaching, for a man to divorce his wife, he simply would have had to find something that was not pleasing to him, and he could have written her a letter that said, I'm divorcing you, and she would have to leave the home. So imagine being a woman at this time. In fact, I, I wanted to, uh, as we you know get ready for some of these sermons, we study different books, and so I've grabbed this text that will help me walk through this passage with us this year. We have other ones that we're using. But in this particular book that I've been using, it actually gave a list of things that you could divorce your wife for in this culture. Okay, I just wanted to read some of them, just so we kind of know the way that people were thinking about divorce at this time. Um, you could divorce your wife if she was barren, if she, she became a deaf mute, if she had epilepsy or tetanus or leprosy, um, if her husband considered her lazy, uh, if she had poor posture, if she had thinning hair, if she had no eyebrows, if she had one eyebrow, if she had bushy eyebrows, if she had uh, eyes that were too high or too low, if she was cross-eyed, if her eyes were two different colors. I thought that would be kind of cool, but apparently back then, not cool. Uh, if her nose were too big or too little, if her ears were too little or too floppy, if she had an overbite or underbite, missing teeth, poor figure, bony ankles and knees, swollen feet, um, if she ate something that her husband had forbidden her 
to eat. Uh, if she went outdoors with her hair unbound, if she spun cloth in the street or spoke to any man other than her husband. And then here was the kicker, um, if she burned dinner. Now, that's not all the things on the list. Those are just the things that I decided to include. So you see the type of culture that Jesus is speaking to. Divorce was something that was pretty easy to do if you wanted to. We can make the argument that it's true today, but these were very little things. And, and with no fault to the husband, he could say, if any, in any of these cases, I'm just going to step away from this. Now, the problem is, that understanding of the law that we read in Deuteronomy 24 does not get to the heart of what was actually wanted from the law God gave them. Because when you read only verse 1, and it just says, having discovered something wrong with her, that's a pretty wide range. But really, if you go and read the next three verses, what it was trying to help men understand was that you shouldn't do this. This isn't a decision that is you should go to quickly because you can't turn it around once you did it. In fact, it was unlawful if a man divorced his wife to go back to her. And so the reason that he was saying that was if you decide one day that, oh, well, my dinner was burned and you decide to divorce your wife, you don't get to change that the next day. So there was more gravity to the situation, but the way that they had decided, many of them, to understand this passage or this law was simply to give the opportunity to divorce. And then Jesus leans in and he goes, no, like that's not what I want when we're thinking about marriage. It's not my plan for marriage to be that way. In fact, and in this, we could talk about a whole other instances, maybe some other passages, but it's simply in this passage, what Jesus says is the only reason to get divorced is for unfaithfulness. And why would he say that? I think he would say that because divorce is never part of God's plan. It's not something that he desires now, when I say that, some of us kind of, we might pull back on that, and there's different circumstances, and there's different issues, and that's true. But why would Jesus have so much to say maybe about divorce, or why would he fall on this side of it? The reason I believe is because what we understand from Scripture is that Jesus relates his relationship to us as the church as a marriage. In fact, we know that the church is known as the bride of Christ. And so when we think about it that way, and Jesus is the groom, when we take marriage, or if we did take marriage, and we understood it in the context that they understood it in, it would cheapen the commitment that Jesus has made to us. Now, some of those gender roles as far as Jesus and the church go out the door, but here's one thing that sticks, is that Jesus would offer himself up for us. Men in the room that are married, you know what it's like when your wife wakes up in the middle of the night and goes, what was that? And all of a sudden, you've got to figure out what it was. You don't know. You were asleep. So you've got to be the one, right? Go figure out what it is, right? Go see what's happening. And we, we take on that role, hopefully, where we're going to say, if there's something out there that's a threat, I'm going to put myself in between whatever the threat is and my wife and maybe children. There's an offering up. That's what Jesus did for us. We needed help. We needed freedom from our sin. And so Jesus offers himself up for us. That's why we lean in and say, divorce isn't part of God's plan. Because Jesus had every right to separate himself from us because of our sinfulness, and yet he didn't. And so we lean in and say, our marriages should look the way that Jesus loves us. The other thing about divorce is that the impact of divorce will stretch farther than just those who are married. 
I would assume that everyone in the room knows someone who is divorced. And in fact, I know that for me, one of the things that weighs on me is I've done numerous weddings in my time as a pastor. I know of two that have ended in divorce. I don't blame myself. I don't think that there's anything else I could have done in that situation. But yet I think about those more than I think about the other ones that are still going. I, there's other marriages I've done that the couples are together in ministry, and it's great. And it's like one of those things I, I, I should dwell on those. But every once in a while, the other ones just pop into my head. We know that it impact, impacts more than just the two people that were married. And so Jesus says, don't let it be something that we move to so quickly. Don't let it be something that we allow into our hearts and, and to be part of our thinking as we do get married. Now, I want to steer the ship a little bit here as we have this conversation because, like I said, not a fun portion of Scripture to teach on necessarily. Okay, when past, if, if I had to pick one passage to preach on today, this would probably not be at the top of the list. But at the same time, as we walk through Scripture, we've got to look at what Jesus says and we have to apply it to our lives and see what's important. So, Let's take this from a different route. Let me talk about a few things that will help us stay away from this topic of divorce or keep ourselves from finding our, our relationships in a place where this is a part of the conversation. So I have three things I want to say today for those of us who aren't married yet or maybe thinking about getting married or already are married. I think this covers a multitude of those things. And so the first thing is date carefully. One of the things we talked about a couple months ago as part of our squad series was the idea that you will become the type of people that you hang out with. The type of people you surround yourself with is going to influence who you are in a few years. So the question is, while you're dating, is the type of person that you're dating the type of person you want to be influenced by five years from then? Because what happens sometimes is we get involved with somebody and we get excited about uh, being in a relationship, and but we maybe never think, oh yeah, we're going to get married. And so you get down the road and things start to get fun and and other friends start to get married, and planning a wedding sounds like a good time, and so all of that stuff kind of happens, and we don't necessarily evaluate the type of people that we're going to be in a few years, and all of a sudden we're into marriage, and a year or two goes by, and we realize this isn't the space we want to be in. Part of it starts with us being careful when we date, and so if you're not married yet, think about that. Think about who you're going to be in five to ten years, and think about who you're Maybe spouse is going to be in five to ten years. What does that look like? This is all part of a decision that we make before we get married. But then when we do get married, here's number two. Commit completely. Any of us that have been married for any amount of time would say that there are good days and bad days. There are days, let's just be honest, right? We don't necessarily like the person that we married that day. Right? You get into an argument, you have a frustration, they did something that hurt you, they don't realize it, maybe you did. Right, There's just days where it's like, this is rough. We have to get through this. There's ebbs and flows. We have to understand that. And when we commit to that completely, we go, I'm going to commit to the ebbs and to the flows. When things are good and bad, we have to recognize those bad days are going to happen. And yet, we would still be committed even when they're bad. Now, again, Multiple conversations we can have about times when it's good for separation or it's good for space or it's good for whatever. But in whole, when we do get married, that commitment should be complete. Here's the third thing, especially for those of us who are married. Pursue your spouse consistently. When Becca and I first started dating, we spent a lot of time apart. I was in Langhorne at Philadelphia Biblical University. She was at Penn State. 
So we were about three hours apart for the first, the majority of the first year and a half we were dating. And so we spent a lot of time on phone calls, like really long phone calls. We would spend a lot of time texting. Maybe in your day you were on like AIM or you had to actually send letters to people, right? And you just had this conversation back and forth. And every, we would see each other about every three weeks at that point when we were both in school. And so that third weekend, we really looked forward to, and we spent a lot of time planning those third weekends and hanging out. And there was, there was this pursuit. There was this time where we would get together, and, and the conversation was, where do you want to eat? No, where do you want to eat? Where do you want to eat? Right? And then, like, what do you want to watch? What do you want to watch? And we, we'd go back and forth. And then when you get married, there's, when you're together and you have more time together, you might decide you want to choose what you want to eat. Right? Or you want to choose the movie that you watch, or you want to be a little more selfish, and that's natural. But see, when we stop pursuing one another, one person's legs get really tired of pursuing. And so it's a one-sided affair. When we both pursue each other, we're both catching one another, right? It's, we're always together. We're, it's good. We're back and forth. It's, it's like a tennis match, a good one. Where you're, there's back and forth, and it's good. But a one-sided tennis match gets boring to watch after a while, doesn't it? The pursuit has to be there. There should be that ongoing desire for us to be the type of person our spouse needs and that we would trade that off back and forth. You know, I saw a funny graphic on, I guess it was Facebook or Instagram the other day, and so I wanted to share it with you. It just says this. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, y'all better discuss AC temperature before getting married. Is that an ongoing conversation in anybody else's house besides me, right? And for the guys, it's sometimes a thing of like, I don't want to turn on the air conditioner yet because I don't want to pay for it. So these days where it's like, it's not too hot and it's just like cool enough, like nope. Or in the winter, it's like getting cold outside. You're like, put another parka on the kid. They'll be fine, right? Let's just save the money. But it's just silly things. But, but what's the point? The point is, sometimes these little things can build up. And we talked about it last week. I brought up the idea of the ships that live in the harbor of your heart. And when you pour things into that, eventually they're going to set sail. Eventually they're going to go somewhere with what it's loaded with. And so when we allow these little things, maybe it, maybe it was just a conversation about how cold it was in the house that day. And that was a frustration. And then another frustration. And then another frustration. And we continue to harbor and harbor and harbor. If we're pursuing each other, we don't harbor those things. And so we continually put the other one first. Why? Because Jesus put us first. He wanted to do that for us. And so when we look at marriage, that's the way we see it. That's the type of love we are called to have for one another. Now, here's another place I, I want us to understand today. Because if you're here, or you're listening, or you're watching later, and you're going through a divorce, or you have gone through divorce, or you're thinking about divorce, or you haven't processed your parents' divorce, or your parents are getting divorced, there's, there's a space there where this is a really difficult topic. And it's something that's not fun to talk about. And one of the things that I remember growing up, unfortunately, was that in my time frame uh, in high school um, and middle school, there was this thing called purity culture. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. But there was this conversation where when, when we were taught about sexuality and marriage and dating and all that kind of stuff, the overwhelming idea that was kind of put in front of us was if we sinned in this area of life, if we uh, did things before we were married that we shouldn't have or we ended up in a bad marriage or we ended up in a divorced marriage, that we were kind of broken and there was no fixing us. And I think some of that still exists in Christian culture. 
when you're divorced or you struggle with another type of sexual sin, there's this sense that you are broken and there's no going back or you're not as good as somebody else. Here's what I want us to understand. Your life is not defined by your relational mistakes. Your life is not defined by your relational mistakes. So wherever you find yourself, if you made mistakes before you got married, if you are in a situation where it was a mistake to be where you are and you've got to figure this out or you're looking for forgiveness in a certain area, here's what we know. Jesus will forgive any sin. There's no limit to that. And even though culture sometimes tells us we're broken, Jesus says there's still hope for us and that he can use broken people because ultimately we're all broken. I want to go to a passage really quick in John chapter 8. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this story before. John chapter 8 verses 4 and 5 say this, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now this is really interesting when we're comparing it to what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus has spent time saying, here's the law, here's what I say. So now they bring her this woman who's caught in adultery, which not the same as divorce, but I'm just saying there's sin that's happening here. And they bring her and they say, okay, Jesus, you want to talk about the law and then you want to talk about what you say? Here's the law. Now what do you say? They've kind of flipped the tables on him to see what, how he will engage with this. In verse 6 of John 8 says this, they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Interesting response from Jesus. Verses 7 to 8, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down and he wrote in the dust. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Verse 10, then Jesus stood up again and said to, the, said to the woman, where are your accusers? Don't even one of them condemn you. Verse 11, no, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. So here's the hope. Jesus falls on the side of divorce that would say there is very, very little as far as a biblical standard to okay divorce. That's just what the text teaches. But here's what he also teaches. Forgiveness in the worst circumstances. And that last little line that he said is very important. He says, go and sin no more. What's he saying? Go and learn from your mistakes. So if you find yourself in a realm of whatever we're talking about today and saying there's some work that needs to be done, here's the good news. Jesus is right next to you ready to do the work with you. You're not alone in that. So forgiveness is available and rehabilitation is available. And Jesus says, go and simply learn from your mistakes. We're going to keep going in Matthew 5 here. And there's another topic that Jesus brings up that kind of has to do with a little bit of the divorce conversation in a little bit of a different light. In verse 33, he says, You have also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. What what verse or what law is he bringing up here? He's bringing up Numbers 30, verse 2, which says this, A man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a pledge under oath must never break it. He must do exactly what he said he would do. 
So now back to Matthew 5, verses 34 and 35. He says, but I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes, I will or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Okay, so let's dig into this for a minute because it seems like Jesus is kind of reacting really heavily to this idea of vows. And there's a big reason for this. In the culture at the time, what was happening was people would almost make vows and they would swear on something to show whether or not they were really going to keep their vow or not. Okay, so they would say, I promise on something. And if it wasn't worth very much, then when someone came back around and they said, hey, you owe me X, Y, Z. They would go, well, I only swore on this, so really I don't need to keep my word. I should have swore on something bigger. Sorry. But if they swore on something like they swear to God that they're going to do this, right? Maybe you've heard people do that before. That would be more serious. And so in that sense, they would go, oh, well, I promised it to God. So actually, I will keep my promise this time. And there was this kind of duality going on where people were deceiving one another based on whether or not what they swore on was important enough. In fact, Jesus covers this topic, this idea, a little bit later in Matthew. In chapter 23, I'm going to read it to us, starting in verse 16. He responds, he says, blind guides. What sorrow awaits you, for you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding. How blind? For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you are swearing by it and by everything on it. Verses 21 and 22. And when you swear by the temple, you are swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. You see how Jesus says, this is so silly. You're saying, oh, I'm going to keep my word based on what I swear upon. And so what Jesus ends up saying in Matthew 5 is he says, just do away with it. It's like two kids that can't handle the thing that they're playing with and they keep fighting over it. So you just take it away because it's like you, you clearly can't handle this. No one gets to play with it. He says, just take it out. Stop. Stop making this problem where you're going to swear by one thing and not the other and confuse people. And so ultimately, Jesus just simply says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Let your life define whether people are going to trust you or not. And so the way that we could think about it is nothing else can ensure your trustworthiness better than your own life. Nothing else can ensure your trustworthiness better than your own life. If someone came to you today and said, hey, can I borrow 100 bucks and I'll return it to you next week? If someone did that with me, I would immediately go to the last time that person promised me something. And did they show up? So let's say two weeks ago they said, they came to me and said, can I borrow 50 bucks? I'll pay you next week. Well, if they did borrow 50 bucks and they did pay the next week, way more of a chance of me going to let them borrow it the next time. But if they still owe me the 50 bucks when they ask for 100, I'm probably going to think about it a little bit more. Why? Because their life has showed me whether or not they're going to keep their word. It doesn't matter what they swear on at that point. Like I, They could pull out a Bible and say, I swear I'll pay you back, but you haven't paid me back the first one. So why would I trust you? 
when our lives show that we're trustworthy, it means that our yes will be yes and our no will be no. Here's another thing that we understand. An honest person never has to convince someone of their intentions. An honest person never has to convince someone of their intentions. You ever think about this when you're buying a used car? And all of a sudden, you've got to evaluate. You know what their intentions are, their motivation to make money. Your intention and motivation is to spend the right amount for the car. So here we are at an impasse to kind of figure out whether they're being fair with you or not, right? If you know the person that's selling you the car and you know their background, you might be a little bit more ready to buy it from them. But if you don't know them, you might be less – why? Because you don't know if they're honest or not. But an honest person never has to convince someone of their intentions. Why is Jesus saying this? Why is it so important to Jesus that our yes be yes and our no be no? Here's why. Especially if we're followers of Jesus, especially if we're members of the kingdom of God. Our trustworthiness and our honestness is a reflection of Jesus. Whether we're honest and trustworthy, if we are known as followers of Jesus and members of the kingdom, is a reflection of Jesus. In fact, if someone looks at our life and thinks that we're not trustworthy and honest, they may not think it's worth following Jesus at all. And so we have to evaluate, am I living a life that's trustworthy and honest so that it reflects well on who Jesus is? And when I share Jesus with other people, there's actually motivation for them to follow him because they see the difference that it has made in me. You know, I thought about naming, I kind of unofficially named this week's sermon, Pinky Swear. This is what my kids do when they try and make promises. And one person, one of them, if, it, if they break the promise, the other one looks at them and says, you pinky swore. You're not allowed to break a pinky swear. Sometimes marriages are a pinky swear. We're able to, if we want, to get out of them. The avenues are there. You have to fill out a lot of paperwork. You're going to have to do a lot of things. But you can do it if you want. And some of marriage comes down to a pinky swear, a commitment, an honest and trustworthy commitment. So Jesus says in marriage, don't split up over these things. Be committed to one another. And in the way that we interact with other people, hopefully you're not walking around pinky swearing with people. That's a little weird. But we make promises. We show up in people's lives and we say, this is the type of person I'm going to be, or this is the influence I'm going to have, or this is the way I'm going to show up for you. We, as if you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower, you're a member of the kingdom of heaven, you should be the most trustworthy and honest person that your non-Christian friends know. You should be the person that when they're going away for the weekend, they call you to watch their house. You're the person that when they're in trouble on the side of the road, they call you because they know that you're going to show up and help them. We shouldn't be the people that are no, nah, I don't want help from them. Uh, they are flaky. The last time they said they were going to help, they didn't help me. We should be the most trustworthy and honest people that others know because Jesus was so trustworthy and honest with us. So what do we do with this? How do we, how do we take this passage and how do we apply it today? Well, here's, here's what I think. I think that we should work and to live our lives in a way where we don't have to convince people we can show them. When we show up and we say, I'm going to do this, right? They just look at our life and they go, you know what? I trust you. I saw what you said. I saw the way that you've lived. I saw the way that you interacted with this person. I trust you. Instead of having to show up and go, I promise I'm going to do it. I promise. I promise. I promise, right? Or I'm going to, I swear on this, or I do that, right? 
live a life in a way that when you show up and you say you're going to do something, people just go, all right, I trust you. I trust you're going to do that. I don't have to worry about it. You don't have to convince me. I believe you. And here's maybe the harder part. And start at home. The people in our own home or the people that we live with the closest or the people that we're around the most, maybe it's classmates or teammates or coworkers too, right? They should know that we are trustworthy and honest. They're the people that they should know, right? When we say we're going to show up, we're going to show up. When I say I'm going to be home at a certain time, I'm going to be home at a certain time. When I say I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to do this for you. So we start at home. Don't have to convince people that you are closest to that you're going to show up. Just do it. And ultimately, the reason for that is because when people believe the life you live, they will believe the Jesus you claim. When people believe the life that we live, that we're trustworthy, that we're honest, we're going to do what we say we're going to do, then they'll believe in the Jesus we claim. But when we don't do those things, when we are not trustworthy and honest, when our yes doesn't mean yes and our no doesn't mean no, we move people to a place where they distrust Jesus because our name, his name is on us. So that's who we're called to be. Maybe there's a situation this week where you've got to build some trust or you've got to restore some trust or someone needs to restore trust to you. And this is part of the conversation we have to have. Say, am I the type of person who is trustworthy and honest? Am I the type of person that people just simply believe by the way that I live that I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I want them to know that when they interact with me, I represent Jesus and they can trust him as well. Join me in prayer. Lord, again, we are grateful to be able to walk through these passages, even though some of them uh, are more difficult to think about and talk about than others. They're not necessarily fun. They're topics we don't love to engage with, especially when we're thinking about things like divorce. And I, I just pray specifically for anyone who is being impacted by divorce now, whether it's happened, it's going to happen, it's thinking about, it's not even them, it's someone they know, and it's just impacted. I just, Lord, I pray for healing in those spaces, and I pray for marriages that might be struggling a bit, that they would take on this idea of pursuing one another, and they would find healing in you. We thank you for stories where you clearly could pass judgment on someone, and you say, my grace is more powerful than judgment. And so then go and sin no more. I pray that that would be the space that we find ourselves in, that we would go and that we would sin no more. And we ask that we would be the type of people who are trustworthy and honest, that when people look at us and they see the type of person we are, it reflects well on you, and that when they see the type of life that we live, they also will then believe in you because of the example that we've given. We know that none of us are perfect. We can't do it perfectly. But we ask that you would show up in ways that we can't and that you would lead us in a way of life that would be honoring to you in jesus name amen